got my gal, the Tenacious G, coming on the podcast today. Big fan of Sarah Compton. We finally got to meet uh, on a call that really could have just been this podcast. We talked like all about your background, sort of how you got to where you are, CrossFit, cultivating your LinkedIn profile. I like your authenticity. I like your energy. And I thought you're exactly the type of person I want to bring on and, and sort of let you expound on some of your expertise, both as a geologist and sort of just as a unique personality in the space. You got your hands in a bunch of different things. Spent time at Great Western, went to school at Alabama, Indiana. I don't need to steal all your stories. So Sarah, what we do here on the podcast, What the Funk, I just ask you, who is Sarah Compton? So, um, I did, I, I did think and had to come up with some descriptive words that would summarize it up and it wasn't much of a summary at all. Um, uh, but you, you, you know, we kind of chatted a little bit and I'm pretty authentic. So my LinkedIn profile is pretty, um, spot on. Like i I think some of the reason I can have so much energy is cause I don't waste a whole bunch of it. um bullshitting too much, but <laughs> you know, like, professional you know I, I consider myself a professional even though i don't really take myself super seriously i just think that kind of means like i'll still work hard and put in time and effort even if i don't want to or maybe don't necessarily have an interest in it like that's that's my job i'm gonna do my job yeah. um bit of an academic which i don't like that word very much but more just i'm really curious i really like learning uh, a bit of an athlete you know and then wife mom daughter sister aunt like all of that, but really just, I have a pretty big curiosity and it's combined a little bit with, with some resilience that's bred from a smidge of stubbornness and, and maybe <laughs> pride. Um, just a little though. Just enough. But you like me never really thought that you'd end up in oil and gas, right? Like that was not on your radar at all. So are you from Indiana originally? Like, where, where did you grow up? And then I think you went to Alabama, which is also somewhat unusual for an oil and gas person. Take me through your path. Like, how did how yeah. did this all happen where we got here today? Yeah, so it's a winding path for sure. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Ohio, but moved to Indiana when I was like four. So one flyover state to the next. But even at that time, my neighbor still tells me how I went and knocked on their door and said, I'm my maiden name is Needy and we can get into that later. <laughs> but, you know, I'm Sarah Needy and I'm 40 years old and I'm going to chase storms when I grow up like nice. a four year old. And that was actually started from a little bit of fear. Um, I remember being afraid of lightning and it like in my brain thinking people are afraid of what they don't know and don't understand. So I'm going to learn about storms and lightning because mm. here's where we live. They happen all the time and I don't want to be afraid for my whole life. And so that started a ridiculously long uh, induction, I guess, like look at storms and everything all the way up through like junior year of high school. I mean, science, mm. math was what I wanted to do to study meteorology and storms and got to be about 16 and realized that will put me squarely in Oklahoma. <laughs> and I, I don't know if I... <laughs> And no travel beyond, right? I mean, maybe go to Kansas, like an exciting foray into Kansas. And so I kind of switched uh, to geology because I wanted to travel a lot more. And that started this big winding path. I was looking at volcanoes, um, volcanic rocks. I picked a school called Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, which is IUPUI. Yep. We used to joke that like it has to be Indiana University and then Purdue because it can't be Pui-Ui-I. So it has to be IUPUI. Okay. And, um, and, you, and you can't yeah. say Indiana or you can't say Purdue because those are their own things. So it's IUPUI. It's IUPUI, man. Go Jags. And that even the geology department is in uh, the Purdue School of Science, but it's uh. an IU degree. So that school just kind of picked the more renowned program and that's where your degree comes from. Huh. But what helped drive that was it was where I could get a softball scholarship. And the school had geology. Geology as a major, even, you know, way back then when I was looking, was not hugely prevalent at universities. And it is shrinking, unfortunately, more so that a lot of schools are dropping it. But yeah, that got me at IUPUI. Um, I wanted to be a professor, mostly because I wanted to teach. I like teaching. I like coaching. And I didn't want to do it at high school or middle school and get paid nothing. <laughs> I wanted to and like have little or no control. you know. So I wanted to do that at a college level. And man, I followed that. That was undergrad, master's, 
And I was probably two years into my dissertation before I realized like professors aren't paid to teach. <laughs> They're paid to do research That's and right. to generate money for the university. And I thought, man, if I'm going to be if I'm going to be making somebody money, like if I'm pulling in millions of dollars of grants or making millions of dollars for somebody else, like I, I want to cut. <laughs> like, <laughs> Can I, I get some get of that? Yeah. Like, where do I do that? How do I do that? And I was already two years in. And so I didn't want to quit my PhD and just be like, mm-hmm. peace out, home slice. Like I've put in all this time. So did an internship with uh, Swift Energy in Houston. Okay. It's now Silverbow Resources. And thought, you know, I actually kind of like this. Like, this is still interesting. And it's not the uh, the corporate, you know, hellhole that a lot of corporate is kind of made out to be. And I think I could do this. And so got a job with Noble Energy. And here we are. So from volcanoes and volcanic rocks right to oil and gas, that's, that's a clear path. That's really cool. So you've, so you've always liked the rock, clearly, mm-hmm. right? You like storms. Yeah. You like the rock. You, you embrace learning. Want to talk about softball a little bit because you said, you know, you're an athlete. I know you still take pride in that. Some of the videos you post are you doing like split jerks. And for people that don't know what that is, that doesn't mean she's a bad person, just or that no, she doesn't no. like it. It's, it's, a, it's a type of Olympic lift. Yeah. yeah. Um, and your form is pretty good. Mine is mine is not. Um, but it's impressive to watch when somebody who's not that big can put a bunch of weight over their head. Um, what position did you play in softball? Uh, so I was center field. It was where I ended up. I bounced around a little bit. I <laughs> believe it or not, I started off as catcher. Wow! And um, they were like, "You're a little little for that." And about twelve or thirteen is when a lot of of girls kind of start hitting growth spurts. A late sprouter might be fourteen or fifteen, but it was pretty obvious at that time that I was not going to be that big, yeah. and that I was quick uh, and fast. And so they tried me out at some different places. They liked my arm, and so. Started in right field and then uh, ended up landing in center field for college. It's got to be, I mean, I, I've always been impressed by fast pitch softball players because it's, the ball rises. So <laughs> you're swinging to like where the ball is, should go, right? So it's mm-hmm. almost like you're constantly hitting a Frisbee or something like that. Um, how, how hard do people throw in college? Is it like 60 plus, 70 miles an hour? Like. Yeah, so it depends on obviously the pitch. So if you have a good pitcher, their fastball should be low 70s, high 60s, mm. but then they'll have a change up and that you'll want at least, I'd say a 10 to 15 mile an hour drop on that. So, you know, you could go from somebody who's throwing 70 to 55. So one pitch, you might get a 70 mile an hour right inside real Ooh. tight. And then the next one, ideally like 55 low and outside, and that will make you look real stupid if you're not if you're not prepped for it no i I mean it's it's hard and i remember you know jenny finch right the legend she pitched at one point to a bunch of major league baseball players and they were just completely befuddled right because they're used to the ball kind of coming down from the Mm -hmm. mound and and from the the arm over the top and they were like okay i'm gonna need to like practice this for a while like i think that they'd figure it out eventually but it's like man this is different this is hard It's like we have a bit of an advantage over baseball because you have one release point, right? You're not going to get any sidearm craziness, but you can do the rise ball. You can do a drop ball. And Mm. so where it kind of almost goes up and then comes down, like what softball pitchers do is insane. That helps that the ball is giant and bright yellow. Like the baseball is small and and just white. But I I would not envy somebody try to go from baseball to softball or the reverse, right? I mean, baseball, the ball is coming a lot faster, but it's coming from farther away. So your ability to judge trajectories a little Mm. bit better, but their ball breaks at a different spot. So it's just, I do think baseball, hitting a baseball or hitting a softball, I think they're almost equally difficult, but I do think it's one of the hardest things in sports. Like you're taking a round ball and a round bat and they're both moving on independent trajectories and your job is to connect them squarely. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got a round bat, you got a round ball and you got to square it up. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not a, uh, a mathematician or anything, but something about that just seems off. Um, it's like square up two round things. of the time. Like you're doing is, good. If you're, you're going to the 70%. hall of fame, you're going to the hall of fame. Yeah. If you fail 70% yeah. of the time. Um, yeah, this is, th- this is fun. Like I, so I played, uh, baseball up until I was about 15 or 16. I love baseball. If you look behind me, right, you see there's homage, yeah. especially to the Red Sox, Pedro Martinez, 
David Ortiz and Fenway Park. Like I, I grew up going to Fenway Park, which is like a kind of a magical place and gives you a real love for, for the game. And I remember playing in Little League um, where the mound was, I think, 44 or 46 feet from home plate. And you get dudes who are like 12, almost 13, throwing 65 miles an hour. That's like hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball in baseball. So I remember taking the jump to Babe Ruth the next year that even though the kids were older and bigger, just having a little more time to hit the ball, none of them were throwing 90, right? So I'm like, actually, Little League as a 12-year-old, 11-year-old was harder for me than being a 13, 14, 15-year-old in Babe Ruth. But then people start throwing curveballs and things get really, really difficult when that happens. But basically you're hitting the equivalent of a, if there's a softball pitcher throwing 70 miles an hour from 45 feet, that's almost like a hundred miles an hour, right? It's pretty fast. It's really fast. And like you said, the key is the breaking ball because it's rare, like 70 miles an hour is the fastball. Very few pitchers are going to rely on that. It's the same as what you experienced in baseball where about, 12 or 13, they start really relying on speed, yeah. but then the batters really start catching up. And if yep. you're throwing fatties right down the middle, I don't care how fast they're going. They're getting parked. Like they're, they're gone. Yep. But man, that you get some of those breaking balls and really the strategy, which, it, and it sort of helped me as a batter. I would for, not forget the previous pitch, but like I judged each pitch on its own merit because mm. I didn't, and this is not a dig to pitchers at all, but they're human beings. And so they might mean to throw a pitch like a batter can guess the sequence appropriately. But sure. if the pitcher screws up and doesn't throw the pitch properly, like it doesn't matter if the batters judged it. So I tried to take each pitch individually on its own merit, whatever it was, and just forget what the previous one was. It, it got me in trouble one time because I also forgot the count. And it was yeah. a 3-0 pitch, and our college coach was extremely – I posted about this on LinkedIn, I think. Our college coach was, like, very hardcore on, you do not swing. No green, <laughs> like if no you green light people, for you. You're not swinging. And I was a freshman, and I, because I just, I just wiped out, I took the count, everything in its own time. And man, I, I swung, I swung it. Fortunately, it was a home run. Like, wow. <laughs> I didn't hit many. I'm not a big kid. I didn't hit many. I don't remember if it was an inside the park or not, but I remember one of the seniors came up and they were like, you are lucky that that was a home run. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, Cause even a single, awesome. you're like pinch runner. You're out. <laughs> They're like, get this kid out. And the track is just on the other side of the field. Go run. <laughs> there you go. That no, that, I mean, that's, that's cool. And it brings me back a little bit to it, it's, baseball, softball, it's an instinctual sport hitting, especially right. And even on defense, right. You just let your instincts take over and your practice and preparation, get the job done. I remember, I think I was probably 14 and looking really foolish on a curveball and saying to myself, okay, the sequence says then he's not going to throw another curveball. He's going to throw a fastball. So I'm going to swing at this pitch because I know it's going to be a fastball. And unfortunately, the pitch was way inside, so I got it like off the handle and grounded to shortstop. And I'm like, okay, so now the next level of thinking is location, yeah. not just pitch sequence, spin. right? It's location, spin. Where's it going to be? Because if he threw it down the middle, I would have crushed it, but he didn't because right. he's a smart pitcher. He's thinking this guy's thinking fastball. He's getting a fastball. He's not getting a strike. Yeah, he's getting yeah. he's getting crowded a little bit. Which was which was cool. I'm like, okay, I. Now I'm incorporating the mental into it. And this is a lot more than I thought, right? This is, yeah. this is no longer just being a 12 year old and, and playing with your, you know, your, your kind of natural instincts. So yeah, I, it's always fun to talk about that. Cause I think there are parallels too with, with sports and, and being a professional, right? Like there's no question that you're going to get things thrown at you. Maybe it's a layoff, right? Maybe it's mm-hmm. oil prices going negative. Maybe it's you realize, waking up one day and realizing like, man, I don't really want to work for somebody else. I feel like I should be an entrepreneur. And, and you're yeah. dealing with these different pitches and it's, it's how you react, right? How you handle that. When a dog barks and you're podcasting, you have to make sure you stay focused, right? Yeah, somebody's got a chainsaw running and he's um he's normally protective of airspace. Usually he doesn't care about chainsaws. Well, that's but. okay. We're dogs are allowed to bark, babies are allowed to cry. This is the new normal for us. And by the way, it's beautiful where you're at right now. You're up in the mountains, right? Yeah, beautiful. Technically our address is Morrison, but this is Conifer. We're behind Myers Ranch. 
do you get animals going on back there? They're like bears, mountain lions, deer. Like, what do you got? <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, yeah. We have, it's not been recent and I didn't post, I think I meant to post it on LinkedIn. We had a bear in my car. Um, no. Weeks ago. Yeah. So just hanging out. <laughs> no, like I, you know, we live up here. I'm not the best at like locking doors. Yeah. Um, and our driveway is such that if somebody's coming down the driveway, like with nefarious intent, I mean, they've, they've got to kind of come a, a little ways. And so yeah. it's not, it's not usually locked. Um, there has been a time when a child has left a car door open and I didn't catch it and it snowed inside my car and we're building a deck. So we have a bunch of wood out in the driveway. And as we were talking about, like, it's been a little abnormally wet. So he's going out to cover the big piles of wood and I'm inside with the kids clean up dinner or whatever. And he comes back in and he's just kind of a little shaken up. He's like, I think I made a mistake. And I was like, you're going to have to be more specific. I don't know what you're talking about. And he's, I, well, your car door was open. And I'm thinking, well, that's really weird. I'm like, sure, it was all shut. But he's like, your car door was open. So I went to go shut it. And as I'm going to shut it, I see a critter inside. And of course, I'm, you know, my brain goes a million miles out. He's like, so I got stuttered or startled. Shut the door real quick. And <laughs> ran inside. I'm like, you should you shut the critter in my car? And so immediately I'm like, Dad, there's a bear in my car. Like a, like a grown up bear or like a it, cub. We suspect as small as it was that he's probably a year or two old. He's probably 300 pounds, you know, two or 300 pounds. Like he's a little guy. <laughs> so he gets, he gets his pistol and this little like metal, whatever the heck he got. And he's going to go get the bear out of the car, but he's, you know, he's nervous. Like he doesn't want to get mauled. And our, our driveway is set up such that the car was probably 15, 20 feet from the front door. It wasn't very far. And so the way we usually scare them off, we get bears fairly frequently. And the way we scare them off is the car alarm because the trash cans, we have bear proof trash cans. They're right. in front of the car. There's like this much space between the trash can and my car. And my car's got a decent car alarm. So you hit it and it's lights and it's noise and it scares the yeah. life out of them. They're gone for at least another two weeks, whatever. <laughs> so that was the plan. I was like, he opens the car door, runs into the house and I'll hit the car alarm and out the bear will go. And that was, that was basically how it went down. Um, and all he had done was tear up the upholstery of the back passenger door and rip loose um, the A, like the A bar plastic covering or whatever. But, it was a little dirty. Like he was a wet bear. It didn't smell remarkably. I mean, he, he was probably in there for a minute and a half, two minutes. And so we got super lucky <laughs> that there was not more damage, but, but yeah, we get wildlife. Um, so now I lock That's my fun. car door and we make sure to lock the like front door. Cause our front door is really, it's just a click button. Like if he can open a car door and get in the car, mm. they can open the front door. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, and they're they're comfortable up there too, right? They're like, oh, cool. I smell something good in the house. Maybe I'll just go take a quick uh, look around. Yeah, this guy is a lot more brazen than some of the other bears that we've usually had. He, um, I say he, it could be a she. She yeah, woke up. Um, just more comfy than other bears that I've seen up here, which is saying something. I mean, we've only been up here five years, but you get used to bears rifling through the trash can and all that. Oh, yeah. This, this guy. <laughs> I this mean, or, or this gal, right? Or a gal. One, one or of gal. those. Critter. This critter. We used to live in El Dorado Springs, which is just outside of Boulder. Uh, it's kind of in a canyon. And we would get bears all the time. So I remember before, I guess, there was an acknowledged bear problem. I'm sure it's not like bears just started existing in 2010. But um, for whatever reason, we just had like regular trash cans. And we're like, oh, a bear got through the trash and kind of ripped everything up last night. Like, let's put some rocks on top of the trash. That'll do it. And the bears just come in. They knock that shit off. It's nothing. They were like, okay, maybe um, like bungee cords. And no, no. So they just rip the thing open. And even though they don't get the bungee cords off, you see like scratch marks everywhere and they still get in. We're like, no, I, I think we're now at the point where we need like bear proof trash cans. And that finally did it. And they stopped coming by. <laughs> But I remember being upstairs in the bathroom one night and looking down at the, and I heard the bear kind of trying to get into the trash. And then, and, and I kind of like yelled out the window like, Hey, and seeing a bear sprint up the road at like 30 miles an hour. I'm like, Oh my God. Like they're it's frighteningly fast, really fast. And especially at that size, you're like, Oh my God, what is going we on? We would here? die. I would be dead. 
scary because usually you don't see them right like they do a good job of like they're they're scared black bears try to avoid humans but when you do see them and then you see them run you're like okay i'm going to avoid that thing yeah or climb right you're like yep can't run from them can't climb like where (laughs) where do you go um but no, that's part of the beauty, of course, of, of Colorado, and it, it does look look awesome behind you. But back to your back to your story, right? So, yep, yep, how, how did you end up? No, this is good. How did you end up in Denver? So, um, Denver was sort of my husband's doing. Um, okay. I had an internship with Silverbow. Now, now Silverbow used to be Swift. Yeah, and they had uh, made a really good job offer. I was pretty stoked about. But Kevin had kind of wanted to, my husband, Kevin, kind of wanted to live in Denver. And so mm-hmm. I went to, uh, I think it was AAPG. And they had, a, they have a, an annual like student expo in Houston, but they also had one up in Laramie and just made kind of the cutoff to get there mm-hmm. and interviewed, was lucky enough to interview with a bunch of companies. Because this is 2012, right? Oil was huge and it was the, you have a degree oh, in yeah. a pulse era, like, come on. So <laughs> That was prime time. Yeah, like, and so got to interview with a bunch of companies and Noble made an offer and um, it was for Denver and that was where we went. So you office downtown working for Noble? Yep, got, was there for about a year and a half. Um, It's probably there for about a year when things started dropping, right? Price started dropping. And then their first round of layoffs was about six months after that. And you know, it's a bit of a bummer. It's your first oil and gas downturn as an employee. And I had never paid attention before. Like I just made the decision, a, you know, yeah. a year or two prior to even go into oil and gas. So wasn't sure what to expect or anything, but yeah, I mean, you get handed that pink slip and you're like, all right, now what? Yeah. So I'm here in Denver. I mean, and, and really 2008 to 2014, I guess there was a little bit of a dip in late 2008 going into 2009 was, was really a good time, right? Cause you had the combination of uh, hydraulic fracturing. You had the discovery of, of shale plays. You had a lot of private equity money coming into the space and newer, smaller companies emerging in addition to a lot of the majors really, really doing well. And then that Thanksgiving weekend hit on in 2014. And it's like, there's blood in the patch today. This is bad. Yeah. And it, it was kind of a struggle. I mean, really, since then, I think it's it's fundamentally shifted. Um, it went from just initial production and overall, how fast can we drill and how much can we produce to a focus on profitability and cash flow and returning money to investors. And it's it's shifted things. And that also coincides with kind of the technology influx coming into the space as well. So it's it's been an interesting market where you have people from the tech side being like, ooh, I want to get into oil and gas. There's so much money. There's so much opportunity. And then things start slowing down as more and more technology comes into the space. I was just talking to one of my clients about this earlier today that I first started working in oil and gas software sales in 2008. And the problem was not sales. It was not getting meetings. It was not doing demos. It was not getting sales. It was finding people who could deliver, right? Because you couldn't hire fast enough. So like when I was at Bolo, I would, a typical day would be like, I'd make like 10 phone calls. I'd get like two or three meetings. And by around lunch, I'm like, "Ah, I I think if I get more meetings, I don't have anybody who can actually show the product. And then if I don't have somebody who can show the product, who's going to implement it? And who's going to train? Who's going to integrate? who's going to support these guys? And I'm like, I guess I'll just go home. <laughs> so I'm like, I, don't, I wonder if these guys are even going to need me. Um, but there, as time, and there wasn't a ton of competition, but as time went on, more and more companies saw, oh, there's an opportunity here. And then you get less companies to sell to and more competition on the tech side. It's really sort of been more survival of the fittest. We didn't have to be great in the early to mid 2000s to sell yeah. software to oil and gas. And now you see it, right? You really have yeah. to come in and you've got to be, you have a process, you have to be, have a technique, you have to differentiate because so many products sound the same. So yep. talk to me a little bit about then after Noble, did you go right from Noble to Great Western? No, it was a winding path. Um, so I think the first 
job might have been a small, a really small operator um, that's now bankrupt called Bridge Creek. I think they're bankrupt. They're done. They're gone. Yeah. Um, that was as a contract worker for pathetically low hourly rate. Um, <laughs> just, you know, coming out of it, like whatever. And then IHS Market, which when I first joined okay. was just IHS. And I had, I knew they were data from Noble, but I had no sure. idea that they also did Jane's Battleships, which my dad reads Jane's jane's books cover to cover like every time he would come and visit in alabama they would go would go down to the gulf and we'd visit the the battleship Mm. and he would practically give a tour like by the end we would have people just following us but so that was funny then they merged they were market when i was there now they're s&p global plat so i mean even data vendors are just they're getting gobbled up then spent some time at liberty oil field services which is now liberty energy um, a little stint with Terra Guidance, which is still kicking along. They are, uh, I w- had a good time working for them. Um, and then Great Western. And so. That was oh, so you, a bit of a you've problem. seen a lot. Okay. So I didn't, I guess I wasn't aware of the IHS stint. What did you do as a geologist over there? So it was more data. It was a data, well in data transformation, something okay. like that. Um, but helping to pull the public data. And so really helping to babysit the teams that were pulling public data. So I had a couple of states that I would oversee and we had two offshore teams, one onshore team, and they were connected to the state databases um, and they'd get pings when new wells and all of that would be uploaded. So they'd pull those wells. And so IHS was still, they may be more automatic now. They may be more automated, right? With Python and beautiful soup and scraping and all that. But at that time they were still manual and hands mm. touching the data and in a way it really did help clean up a bunch of data still um because they had those couple of layers of data quality but i cannot imagine how expensive <laughs> all of that was right well that's why it costs so much to subscribe to it you know that, but that is a good point it was the same thing with drilling info i, I remember going to austin visiting their office I think I was talking partnership on the sales side or something. And they're like, here's our development group. And this is just onshore. And they're like, yeah, we've got 40 of these people just scraping data every day. And I was thinking like, that's going to be replaced by technology at some point. (laughs) Master data management tools, big data, it's coming. Yeah. And you can scrape it now. Like I think uh, the ones who are doing it right have the bots scraping it. And then somebody is curating it. Like they can have a bot scraping. You can even have a bot kind of cleaning. Right? You can have business rules. I mean, you have an idea of how long a well is supposed to be, of how how big a stage should be, how many stages. But like, you yep. have some business rules that you can set in that grab the low hanging fruit. But you still need, at the end of the day, a human being taking a look. You know, even if it's just charts to to spot outliers and stuff like that. So the ones who are doing it right, I think, are com- are combining those two because you get the lower price point and you have one person now doing the job that like. 40 people were doing before. Right, right. It's a lot more QC than like the actual like data scraping and, and effort that it that it took that's now been replaced by by technology. But still, like I, I play around in various different data sets. It's like part of the, the benefit of being a sales consultant and touching lots of different software products that consume uh, and integrate that data into it. And what's interesting is some things still get missed. And I find a lot of it's just like naming convention where because of all the acquisitions in the space, like I have it here, right? But that doesn't mean the person that's QCing the data says, okay, well, ultra is actually pure West. So then you've got a whole bunch of ultra petroleum stuff. I see a lot of Burlington resources. I'm like, didn't I get acquired like 20 years ago? Like you you know who it is and fundamentally it makes sense, but you're still like, well, that's what the state says. So this is what it is. But like me as the user, if I'm looking to like, well, I want to do an acquisition or I want to analyze the profitability of this or that. It still takes a little bit of human ingenuity to, to get past even what they do on the data side. But, but that's sort of where I see things still falling a little bit short. But that'll be an interesting space to keep an eye on uh, because I saw the other day in Veris just announced they crossed half a billion dollars in annual revenue. And that's like, great, like good job. But that generally means like, okay, someone's going to come for that now. Right. This yeah. is this is the nature of technology and competition and capitalism that, OK, well, what are they doing that we can't do for less and maybe right. provide better service with? 
And it's the same thing that happened to IHS with Drilling Info, right? They seized that opportunity and now you got companies like Well Database trying to do it. But you can't just be cheaper. You have to be better. And that's hard to do because you don't have as many resources. Right. Fun stuff. Talk to me about Great Western. So I always thought Great Western, especially on the um, G&G side in the engineering space, was, was, was pretty strong. Um, you were there for just over three years and at a small company, that's a long time, whether it's a tech company, oil and gas company, I don't care. So tell me a little bit about great Western and kind of the talented team that you were a part of there and what all happened with great Western. I know you, uh, you had a good run there. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because, um, great Western was like a little microcosm in oil and gas where so many of their employees had been there a very long time. Like, we, the G and G group for me at three years, that was the shortest run for any of them. You know, even during, um, there were two rounds of layoffs. I think one of our geo steers never ended up coming back. Uh, but he had kind of started his own thing down in Mississippi, but they let go of a senior geologist and a geophysicist and brought them back uh, in contract. (laughs) Like, um, because we still had the work, the work still needed to be done, but that was a lot of fun. And just, we learned a lot. The, rocks were really really good you know very oil rich rock and when you're at a small company like that man you get to do all kinds of stuff like you're it you're you're the one running it and i think at the end we were at fifty thousand barrels production or 55 like not a small amount you know one or two rigs for a short insane while it was three rigs on our our poor steers. but we got to do just about everything from permitting to development we had a really cool science section that we got a couple of papers out of um, a couple of uh, Urtech talks and man, that was, it was a good run. Like, but I did have a feeling, you know, you're looking around, you're seeing Civitas um, yeah. stuff and Chevron that I bought Noble, which I didn't, I didn't anticipate Chevron wanting great Western um, for the acreage, but eventually of course they ended up with great Western acreage or they will in a few <laughs> they weeks. Ultimately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know it when you're in a small company like that. And they had been trying, my, from what I'd heard, they'd been trying to sell almost since inception. Like the plan for Pat Bro was to have the acreage develop it up a little bit, sell it, and, and off she goes. Everybody makes money and, you know, it rains money. Ta-da. And that, <laughs> <laughs> the, like, the sales just kind of would always fall through for one reason or another. And then uh, equity switch happened where Pat Bro was no longer the mm. main owner and it was EIG and with my experience with Noble and just having looked around the industry you know and kind of bouncing around you don't want to be kind of the jerk on the team but you're just kind of warning folks who got used to not being sold right and they they sort of had been sheltered from the oil and gas up and down and so you're just kind of warning them like this isn't Pat Bro anymore guys like this is EIG we're we have a year maybe tops and uh, like that was almost exactly the time frame was almost a year, but it was like, these guys know how to make money and they're going to flip it. I don't know who's going to buy us. You know, I I had kind of thought it would be Civitas. So when they made, they bought somebody a few months before PDC bought us. Um, I don't remember who it was, but, and PDC was always one kind of in the background. I was like, PDC, if they have a come to Jesus moment and decide they want to play with the big boys, they might buy us. But, in my mind, it was mostly Civitas. And then when PDC came, I was like, oh, huh, look at that. <laughs> it, was, it was PDC. So, yeah. and you know, if it's a Denver oil and gas company that buys you, your G&G team is done. Like, they have yeah. a G&G team. They might keep an ops geo, maybe. Maybe they'll keep somebody for ops, depending on how how their geo team looks, rig, rig to geo ratio. But most Denver-based oil and gas companies have the technical team they want in geology. And if they buy another Denver-based company, they're not often interested in keeping the tech for right. geology. They're, they're <laughs> buying you for the asset. The asset's been proven out. We yeah. don't need our, our geos. We don't need our GIS person. We might not even need your IT people, right? Yeah. Might not need your accountants. So you've done a really good job of, of reinventing or inventing yourself, depending on how you want to look at it um, after that, because I've, I've seen this happen a lot. And, and I actually genuinely feel bad for a lot of people, particularly in the Denver market that had these awesome jobs. And then an acquisition happens and you're a little bit blindsided and you're like, oh, no, I'm redundant. 
and I get paid really well. And yep. there's no other companies I can really work for <laughs> because they're all saturated. So then one job posting comes up at a Denver-based company and you're fighting for it, right? And yeah. everybody's going after it and really talented people are going after it. And you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm waiting for the next Denver startup. And there's been a lot less of those. Yeah. So what do you do, right? So so how did you then take the bull by the horns? You'd seen it coming, right? You'd seen the acquisition yeah. coming. You went from Pat Bro to Finance Bros. And then what happens? <laughs> A sale, right? And yeah. then, and there you are. What next? Like, what are yeah. you thinking? Are you like, am I in the wrong space? Do, do I have to, God forbid, move back to Houston? Like, what's what was next for you? How did you kind of reinvent yourself and, and take this next step in your career? So... The consulting firm was something I had anticipated. I don't remember when it first kind of came into my mind of like, like you said, you know, sort of, well, I kind of might want to try going out on my own and see what that looks like and have a little bit more control. Because at least if I fall flat on my face, I mostly have me to blame, you know, yeah. and you're still at the mercy of the market. You're still at the mercy of a bunch of stuff you don't control. Um, but when you're at an oil and gas company or, or any company, there's a middle person there also controlling your success or failure. And yeah. they're trying to navigate the same waters you are and their success may or may not be linked to yours. And so I was just a little bit tired of having that middle person in the way and like, you know what, let me like try and see how this goes on my own. And that was part of what really started kind of a LinkedIn social media, like networking uh, concept. And anybody who's who's talked networking with me for two seconds has heard my um, RMAG education outreach story, which is people, especially technical people, we really like to think, oh, well, my work will stand on its own. My work will be what gets me forward. And that's sure. sort of true. Um, your work can speak for itself, but it needs a platform to speak from. Like if you're in a concert, you might sing better than the person on stage, but nobody gives a crap. Like they can't hear you. <laughs> nice. They're not there to see you. They're there to see that other singer. And so you could be great. You could have a great body of work, but nobody cares. And that's yeah. where LinkedIn sort of came in this, the RMAG uh, Teacher of the Year Award hit it home for me because some people, well, if you have a great product, it'll speak for itself and it'll market itself. And that's complete and utter bullshit. Um, sometimes it happens. It does happen sometimes. But like we had a thousand dollars to give to a teacher plus a thousand for their school, like literal free money, <laughs> maybe a half hour to fill out an application. But free money was the product. Yeah. And you, you can't, in my mind, have a better product than that. Um, and we couldn't get people to apply for it. They, they couldn't sign up. Like we tried as low barrier of entry as possible. Mm. We tried to time it appropriately with the school year, but it was free money for um, earth science teachers in Colorado, like teachers, te free money for teachers. <laughs> and uh, we couldn't get enough people. And it was because. Well, we and recognition and recognition, you get free marketing out of the deal. Right. 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 And it's just like, man. And so that drove it home. We're like, it doesn't matter how good the product is if people don't know about it. They're not going to buy it. And the same is true with us as professionals. And that drove the layoffs have driven home. And the thought of being a consultant kind of shifts the mindset from like, I'm just an employee trying to find a job to I have a brand. And, you know, I don't like throwing that term around. I know it's like, oh, brand yourself, blah, blah, blah. But you have to really, like you said, take the bull by the horns and realize that like your career isn't necessarily tied to working for a company like you can try to do something on your own and see how that goes and totally. even if it's all flat on your face well you're no worse off than you were before like you still got to pivot oh, so. there's so much good stuff here and there, this is part of why if i could buy stock in you <laughs> if i could buy tenacious g tng stock right on the new york <laughs> stock exchange i would and, and i think my listeners may not place as much emphasis on this as they should, because I have a lot of salespeople on this. I have outgoing personalities on this, but a couple episodes ago, I had Todd Brooker on. He is the president of Kali Gillespie. And he said that it is so, they have some of the best engineers in the space and it is so hard to get them to network. 
right? Yeah. So he like has forced himself outside of his comfort zone, which is being on a computer and running decline curves and looking at other people's data yes. to actually be out and about. And I really commend him for doing that. I think geologists are even more so in their own shell. And, and you've successfully broken out of that. Yeah, you yeah. want to drink beer and color and talk about rocks. Like, okay, yeah. maybe not necessarily the right thing for me as like right. a, an extrovert, but you know, that's that's cool. And I've been to some of the Arbag events and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit different than the people here, but like they're doing what makes them comfortable. And yeah. and that's and that's fun. But yes, the the value especially now with the presence you can cultivate on social media. And I do actually like the term of, of brand building. I was just talking to my mentor about this today that like I have successfully built my brand as Funk Futures as I think the go-to contract sales guy in oil and gas. That doesn't happen overnight. That took 15 no. years of grinding in sales. It took three plus years of podcasting. It took going to hundreds of different oil and gas companies' offices still getting up at 5 a.m. some days to fly to Oklahoma or Houston to be in meetings. And, and that's how you do it, right? This is not just a flip that you switch. And where people tend to get discouraged is early on when they don't get that immediate feedback loop of positivity where you're like, well, I guess what? I broke outside of my shell. I made a LinkedIn post and two people liked it. And I got one comment. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about them. So then I'll just keep doing things the same way. But you know, the definition definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And, yeah. and, and that this is really where like, I, I hope that you find a way to continue to coach people to break out of their shell that are in the engineering and the geo space because there are less jobs now. Consolidation yeah. has happened and it's not coming back in Denver. So what do people do? They have skills. They're educated. They're bright. They have to build their own brands. You need to get them out there, Sarah. It's your job. Well, and this is um, how I encourage I've, uh, many engineer friends, but one of them in particular had the same kind of um, just like you said, the jobs seem to be shrinking. And so this whole concept and question of like, tell me your five or 10 career plan, like that's, it's, it's not a joke, but it sort of is. And the old way of thinking cannot apply. You can't have this plan of like, oh, I'm going to come in and I'll be a geologist. And then in five years, I'll be a senior geo. And then in 10 years, you know, maybe manager or whatever. Those are all titles and you don't control yeah. that. And you could be really great and really smart and really awesome. And you're sitting your ass on the couch while other people who may not be as great a geologist, but they're, they're climbing that ladder and smart people are going to realize that technical folks realize that and they get discouraged. And I think that's part of the loop to not network. They're like, well, it's yeah. not like I can control anything. And that is where they're wrong. The networking is where you get the power. And so instead of thinking about titles, you know, and it's, it's a little bit of a bummer because you, you want the titles, you want the money, you want the work that comes with all of that. Sure. Find other ways and find like, why do you want those titles? You know, why do you want to be a senior geo? Oh, well, I want to do highly technical work, ideally geology work. Like for some, you know, for me, learning stuff and doing technical work or just problem solving at a high level. That's what I want. Yeah. It doesn't, I've realized in this role, it doesn't have to be geology. And so you, you have to start getting into your wants and find ways to get those. And that's where the power comes from. Like, if, if you want to have a family, well, maybe you want a job where you don't have to travel 80% sure. of the time. That looks different. And so, oh, well, I would like to have a job. You know, like, start to frame it that way instead of these, that's an internal framing instead of these external job titles. Because especially in Denver, even for engineers, but especially for geologists in Denver, like, it's a pretty bleak market. You can do it. People are doing it. You just have to know, like, you might be laid off. You might have to find other ways to get those skills and keep them up, like make it more internal. And that's where the consulting kind of came from. Like, yeah, take more control, recognize you do have it, but like, it doesn't look like how you've been told it looks. Well, I, and I think part of that is, is the education system too, right? And this yes. is all fundamentally shifted with the expansion of the internet. Like you don't, you know, and this platform's on digital wildcatters. I don't think Colin or Jake who run that company graduated from college, but they have some of the biggest brands in oil and gas because they built that for themselves. It took time. Yes. They cultivated it, but they're like, what, what 
value can we provide? What problem can we solve? There's a lack of, of media. There's a lack of exposure for people doing really good things. There's a general sentiment toward oil and gas. We think we can shift that. And yes. that doesn't require a degree to do. Like maybe it would help you if, if you had it, but it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it's for me, you know, going back to college days, like, you know, as a history and American studies major, I couldn't tell you a lot about the Civil War, even though I sat in classrooms and, and learning all about it for years. What I can tell you, though, is it taught me how to work hard and and how to socialize and, yeah. and how to um, keep up with people who were inherently like more intelligent than I was. So what are my skills, right? How do I adapt? How do I make it work? And, and that was the values, the socializing of of kind of secondary education that that was valuable for me. But I've learned a lot more in in business and being in boardrooms and and going through sales calls and seeing companies get acquired and getting passed over for promotions that eventually that's what hardens you. And, and yeah. that's kind of what allows you to take control, like you said, as you have in your own career. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, Sarah, but I wanted you to talk specifically a little bit more about, is it Intelligent Wellhead Systems? Is that the... Yep. Uh, company that you work for, and you have a consulting room. So, so what do you what do you do? What do you do these days? <laughs> yeah, so um, definitely not pulled back kicking and screaming. But when I got into my own consultancy firm, and I'm fortunate enough, my husband has a, a fairly steady job, and so we we had planned that kind of together. And because just like you said, it's going to take a while. Do yeah. not expect to make a lot of money those first couple of years of your consultancy, nah. unless you get lucky and you know, you might know that your end is coming at your current job and you can sort of start to like build that network and platform and all of that. But for the most part, those first couple of years might really suck. Um, mm, yeah. And so I was ready to ride that out and I was really liking my own kind of thing, like chasing down jobs, doing all that stuff. And I got reached out to um, by Intelligent Wellhead Systems for this spot, largely based on what they had seen on LinkedIn. And Look so, at that. Yep. Um, I take an attitude a little bit, like I do some technical posts, they usually fall completely flat, but sometimes- <laughs> I don't read those for the record. No, I like your, no, I like your human posts. Yeah, like the weightlifting videos are the like, yes, life sucks sometimes, keep going. Because right. your resume is on LinkedIn, so your technical chops yeah. are there. And so IWS is first and foremost like a safety company, and they're on the fracturing side, and they do essentially valve management, right? And so anybody who's fracking right now, if you're swapping over wells, you have pressures that you have to check and you have to make sure, sure the pressures on either side of the valve are good. So you have some poor person out there at like three o'clock in the morning with a clipboard. You know, if you're in the Bakken and it's December, like, oh, check these numbers and flip this valve. And so the system will do all those checks and nice. can help run the valves, all of that. And I was like, this is awesome, but I'm no idea why you would reach out to me. I'm a geologist. Like, <laughs> yeah, but you understand it. it. Yeah. So the my title is product manager of cloud services. And so product management is kind of more on the like ideation side. You're a little more yeah. cerebral. You do the business case, right? Once you've moved into execution, it, it is more business and more project execution kind of work, project management. Um, but at the beginning, it's like come up with new stuff. And help us run it through. Understand what the customer is going through. Understand what these ENPs are going through. Find their pain points yeah. and help solve them. And I was like, oh, that flipped the light switch for me. I was like, that's why you came after me. Okay, I get it now. Like, as we're coming in, I got it. And so it's been really cool because they're willing to take somebody, a lot of folks who have the industry skill set and the industry knowledge and what they really need for from their positions and then kind of train the rest. Like you hear that happening. The same thing with the job, like somebody reaching out for a job. I've heard these stories. I'm like, you're full of shit. That doesn't happen. And then it happened to me. So I have to apologize to everybody who I thought was full of shit. Um, it, it has happened to me. It can happen to you. Um, but And then they, they're willing to take you in for transferable skills and train you up. It's been amazing. Like you get so jaded and you're like, companies like that don't exist. They don't. But it really helps. My manager is really solid. Like I came in and I had these 90 day goals. <laughs> I was, here's your expectation. Here you go. I'm like, oh, oh, look at that. Like, that's sweet. And they were more outlined, a little more tangible, which geology at an EMP firm by its nature is not like, come in, help us plan our wells, you know, help us make sure we don't go yeah. out of zone. Like there's not necessarily these set things, but product management, it was a little more tangible. 
Um, and so that was really nice, but I am still, I do still have, um, and I'm going to try to wrap up. I know we're getting close. I have my little project off to the side too. I didn't totally let go of my consulting firm and I was um, building a software from some pain points I experienced at Great Western while I was working there. Stuff so I was like, well, I'm just going to build this up so that I can solve it. Then they got sold and I thought, well, this problem still exists at a lot of operators. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's at the point now where I like, I have to find, you know, I just have to find $75,000 laying around and or become a full stack developer while working a full-time job and raising two children. So, you know, we set the Oh, so, so easy. Yeah, so easy. That's a that's a challenge that I have too. I, I have ideas, but without um, you know, full stack development chops, uh, it's kind of hard to put those ideas into the technology. Oh, and then by the way, yeah, that, then that technology becomes a company. And then yeah. what about your other companies? What about your job? What about your family? Yeah. What about your husband? Um, we'll worry what about, about not just that. working? Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll figure that out later. But one step at a time. Yeah, you, you know, I guess final thought to to wrap up, like you know, what if I fail, right? What, what if I actually do get outside my comfort zone and, and start putting myself out there and networking more and posting on social media, maybe starting my own company? What if I fail? Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I say this to my clients all the time that, that want us to help them with marketing. It's like, well, what if nobody likes it? Right? What if nobody, I'm like, but what if one person does? You and what if that one, one yes. person wants to do business with you or buys your product? Well, then it was worth it. Right? How much did you spend? How much effort and time was that one action that got you that desired result? Because it's not, it, most likely it's not going to happen right away, but it might, and, you know, minerals guy, Stephen Hatcher, we've worked with him for a while. That was his big fear. What was holding him back was, was failure. Who's going to watch this? Why is anybody going to care? Who's going to do it? I'm like, well, flip it around. What if somebody does? Yeah. What if 15 people watch one of your videos, 15 more than you had before with this idea in your head? And now he's got people coming to him, throwing him money, trying to do business. Now it's That's like David Goggins, man. What if you right? do? Nice. Yeah. What if you do? I like that. But it's, it's, it's really good stuff. This is going to be my challenge to you because we have more to talk about. I want you to find another geologist or somebody that <laughs> wants exposure. And then we're going to come on and do another podcast. You can co-host with me and we can, uh, we can interview. So that's your challenge and we'll revisit that. But Sarah Compton, where do people find you? How can they find the Tenacious G online? Uh, LinkedIn is the easiest way. My yeah. neighbor, after um, much cajoling and battering, has convinced me to get an Instagram, but it's nowhere. <laughs> I don't hardly ever check it. Like, I can barely yeah. handle LinkedIn. I have a Facebook account for fitness stuff, but okay. LinkedIn is probably the quickest, easiest way. Um, and yeah, you can usually find me there. And then uh, I had the one closing thought, like going out on your own. And if you fail, for me, I couldn't not try it. It was like, if I didn't try this, it would eat me up. Yeah. I would never know. So even if you fail, well, at least you know. At least you found out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, that I completely agree with that. And that's sort of where I got to where people would be like, wow, that was bold. Like that took balls to do. I'm like, mm, I, like it actually, I had to do it. It would have been less authentic of me to take another job because I didn't yep. want to do that. Like this is what I had to do. And if it failed, well, it was the worst thing that could happen. I would just take a job. Like, that's okay. I'd find a job somewhere. Like, that we have employable skills. Anyway, Sarah, this is great. Sarah Compton on LinkedIn. Great follow. Um, great leader and emerging one in the oil and gas tech space. Thank you for coming on What the Funk, and we'll be bringing you back soon. Thanks for having me, man. Have a good one.